I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello and welcome back to Prospect Magazine's podcast, Headspace. We bring together our editors and experts pushing the question, what's the big idea? I'm Tom Clark, and this week we speak to the author Will Self, who this month has written an extended essay in Prospect, uh, drawing on the themes set out in a new book by Michael Pollan, How to Change Your Mind, on the subject of psychedelic drugs. Although it's not only an essay based on that book, it's also an essay based on Will's own experience. For those of you out there in Prospect podcast land who've inadvertently taken too much LSD. Just drink a bottle of wine, you'll be fine. Riot's rain in minutes. I'm also here with our arts and books editor, Samir Rahim. Um, so, Will, um, what was it like the first time then? First time I took a major psychotropic drug. Mm. I, do you know, I can't honestly remember. I, um, and I probably was fairly young. I mean, the, the, uh, I mean, I may have been as young as 16, say, for example, 17. Uh, the the uh, occasion I write about in the Prospect article, uh, I would have been about, well, I wouldn't have been much older, just 18, I would have thought, when I was just first up at Oxford. And that particular trip was what would be classically described as a bad trip. You know, uh, and this like, is LSD. Yes, this is LSD. We're going back to the 1970s. All of the LSD came. Uh, you know, there was this famous thing, uh, police operation called Operation Julie, which was to bust a group of uh, illegal chemists who were making LSD in Wales, and and it was extremely high quality. This LSD. I mean, and, and there was a lot of it, and it was definitely what was called Operation Julie LSD. There were things called, you know, because you know. Uh, LSD, the the you know the kind of active dose is yeah. tiny. You're talking about 120 micrograms. So uh, you know you, it's a tiny drop of fluid that would be in a bit of blotting paper. Usually that's how it would appear, and then the blotters would be kind of decorated in all sorts of funny ways. You'd get ones with pictures of Mickey Mouse on them. And in this case, I remember it was what was called a red microdot, and it literally looked like a you know the old espionage microdot, a little red thing. But of course. You know, it contained a, a lot, of, lot stranger data in it than even the most kind of weird state secrets. And it was, you know, I was familiar with psychotropics. So up until when the trip kind of went critically wrong, it was nothing beyond my experience. It was only this strange moment when we got back to my room 
and put on Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue that it completely overwhelmed me. And I experienced what Michael Pollan in his book calls and many other kind of psychonauts or people familiar with major psychotropics call ego death. That point when you absolutely feel that your essential self, if such a thing can be said to exist, is is falling apart, is kind of disintegrating. And, and you know, the kind of accompanying panoply of, of hallucination. And I use the word advisedly because I think a lot of people talk about these drugs as hallucinogens or psychotropic drugs. They very rarely induce full-blown hallucinations. Where uh, you think something's in the room. Yeah, where you exactly, where something that is not there appears veridical. And I think that's a key distinction. That, you know, almost always when you, you, you think something is that is not, you feel bad. You <laughs> You don't tend to feel good about that. Uh, so, and, and, and from then on in for about, you know, I mean, in terms of kind of orthodox time, it probably was only, you know, less than an hour that mm. I was in this very, very terrified state and seeing these appalling visions of, of kind of, you know, the inside of a spire lined with mouths screaming my own negation uh, and and myself obliterated no locatable perspective but a weird kind of panoptic stroke panoptic stroke synoptic perspective of this mm. weird scene of lower manhattan tenanted by dead sort of zombie-like figures skeletons wreathed in rotten flesh and a band playing Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue, a band of skeletons playing it on these bony instruments. Now, that bit was from the real world because you got this on the record. I had that on the record, yeah. But did you, did you at some level know that this was a drug-induced experience or did you just... No, it, it, gone? Been, it had gone then. I, I, was in, I was in it. I was in it. And when my friend Ben appeared sort of beside me, it was as if he was swimming... I mean, I should imagine, you know, for students of recent culture, it's probably a bit like when the, the sea monster in, uh, in that film, The Shape of Water, uh, sees the kind of Sally Watsit character come up to the glass for the first time. That would be what Ben's face was like to me. It was, you know, I was in this kind of aqueous environment of horror and dissolution. And, and the, the, you know, he spoke to me in such a way that I began to come back enough for him to pass me a bottle of wine, which I drank all of. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's actually kind of a sort of rather kind thing, even on a Prospect podcast. For those of you out there in Prospect, prospect podcast land who've inadvertently taken too much LSD, just drink a bottle of wine, you'll be fine. Right as rain in minutes. <laughs> but um, <laughs> when... Um, when people sometimes talk about these experiences, they talk about you know tearing down the veil of reality and getting into the the truth of the truth of things. But in your article, I don't really think that's what you felt was happening. No, I think I, I think that psychotropics have enabled me to tear down the veil of reality and discover the truth of things. I absolutely do think that. I think it's just. What's perhaps surprising and contrary about my my position is I, I think that the the veil part of the veil of the reality that needed to be torn down is all of that psychedelic claptrap about the imminence of consciousness in the material world, which is clearly cobblers. So you you, you find yourself <laughs> thinking you've got all these visions, you're believing them while mm. they're there, mm. and then this thing you talk about this this kind of I think you say it was reassuring it, maybe mm. reassuringly stoic. 
is that what well, once you knew that that was a load of drug-induced nonsense, you could think about the rest of the world somehow in a, a different well, way too. But wait a minute, there's a second part to that thought, Tom, because it's not just that, uh, you know, think back to the ego death, This yet this panoptic, synoptic perspective on, on essentially hallucinatory content. Now, you know, the hippie generation, the Learys of this world, the, um, you know, the... the I don't know about Ginsburg, but Alan Watts, you know, that whole kind of, certainly Huxley, that whole generation of early psychonauts took it that what they were then seeing was some kind of deeper level of truth about the world. Mm. And the specific deeper level of truth they believed that they were seeing about the world was that uh, individual human consciousness was but part of a kind of collective universal consciousness right. that, that spread throughout the universe, not just the world, and was imminent in materiality itself. And and you can see that that's consonant with some Eastern thinking, and it kind of mm. you can you can understand where they're getting it from. You could even understand why they would have that as a hallucination or an insight, particularly since they were tending to, you know, go on trips with a lot of incense and sitar music in the background. <laughs> you know, like, so I reckon they kind of rigged the setup now that insight you know i'm taking lsd in the late 70s 10 years after the summer of love i'm taking lsd uh, if you like in the punk years mm. where, so my kind of insight is quite punk and it includes tearing down that reality mm. not just the veil of yeah. the commonsensical perception of the world we have now uh, and it's interesting to think about how kind of a common sense perception of the world has a latent ideological force. That's true. And I think psychedelics enable you to see that. But why substitute for that this kind of perhaps Buddhist or Hindu-influenced cosmic consciousness? Why, why would you go to that? You know, it seems to me instead of, uh, you know, as I say in the article... Uh, you know, around the time I'm taking LSD at Oxford, I'm studying David Hume, who who says, you know, uh, when what is what is myself when I look inside my mind? All I see is a disordered collection of ideas and impressions, and nothing to which I can give that name. You know, and that's the insight that I had on LSD was the kind of uh, absolutely kind of mutable and in a sense fictive nature of identity itself. And so, do you think that? actually did i mean get onto the book in a minute which is sort of about mm. therapeutic use of some of this stuff mm. so ego death may be useful to get outside of yourself and be realistic about yourself maybe yes i th i think it's very good i do actually and i but i can, it's super scary and i can understand why people need to be in quite safe circumstances to experience something like that but yes i think it is useful uh, you know, William Burroughs, perhaps not somebody somebody you necessarily look to for life lessons. <laughs> Nonetheless, I think pointed out quite well that it, it, it's difficult for people to, for example, con I can't remember his exact wording, but the essence of what he says is it's very difficult for people to kind of casually exercise authority if they've had the kind of visions that LSD induces, you know, if they've kind of seen themselves as a, 
kind of screaming primitive man or a baboon, you know, or kind of, mm. you know, experience something. It's very difficult to snap back and start being the CEO of a major Fortune 500 company. I mean, we can perhaps get on to that because I think some of what's happening with the new psychedelia is precisely because of that, that that has, is indeed the case. Uh, and I think anybody who's had profound experiences with psychotropics, uh, yeah, it, it's difficult for them to accept commonsensical reality, including common sense, but in my view, erroneous assumptions about the justness of certain kinds of authority and ways of going about things. What you're saying, though, does remind me uh, the ego death. It does remind me of the, the sort of religious thinkers of the past. Um, and you talked about Eastern traditions mm. as well. Um, St. Simeon Stylites on his, on his pillar um, getting a similar kind of experience, and there's. I was reading the other day. There's a, there's a sort of a rogue ayatollah in Iran who um, says that uh, ayahuasca imbibing in Sufi practices is a sort of perfectly normal, acceptable thing to wow. do. And it, it, you know, if they're not aiming for ego death, then what are they? Yeah, but it wouldn't need to be ayahuasca. I mean, Rumi writes the drunken mm. sheikh is a recurrent mm. character in Rumi's poetry. So in the Sufic tradition, there has been an acceptance that intoxication is a route towards that kind of ego death. And some form of, you know, Sufists might call it enlightenment, but I, I in my, in selfists call it indarkenment because, it, I mean, I think people find it kind of slightly grim the way my intimations of the world, I don't think. I think consciousness is epiphenomenal. I mean, yeah. it, it appears here and there clearly in the universe, but it doesn't mean anything. And, 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 <laughs> and, and then just to link to this therapeutic point, you think, well, some people might be like really troubled by that. You think this is a, a reassuring thought, just you, you're not going to get too lost in your thoughts because they don't really matter to any yeah. thoughts. Yeah, don't you? On and off. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously, just that proposition that in a sense... You know, I mean, one of the things that Pollen writes about very well is very interesting is the, the extent, you know, he he has a, an interesting way. I mean, it's not his originally of thinking about mental dysfunction and disorder and a kind of scale between at one extreme what you, you can think of as the kind of autist. And I don't mean in, in terms of autistic spectrum disorder. I mean, in terms of the Greek term for the self, the kind of self-based maladies, which are all about people who are unable to kind of get out of their ego. Everything becomes eternally self-referential to their own mind and thoughts. Uh, and Pollen thinks about addiction as falling within that and depression, very mm. close to it as well. And, and sees these drugs as very useful for precisely that. They blow apart the self. And at the other end of the spectrum, you might have, as it were, selfless disorders, where the problem for the individual is that they can't maintain themselves in a sufficiently integrated way to be functional. You might think of the psychoses, whether or not they're schizophreniform problems, and some personality disorders as being like that. And clearly for those people, ego death is contraindicated. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> it's really not going to help. <laughs> so let's come on to pollen. I mean, one thing you've spoken a lot about, you know, uh, the likes of Leary and uh, the early kind of proselytizers for this. Pollen num like seems like he got through the 60s pretty clean. Am I yeah. reading you right? Yeah. yeah, he did. I mean, apart from a bit of marijuana, he seems to have had no, uh, which he's not keen to class as a, as, a, as a psychedelic, which I think is a mistake. Uh, and I think his argument comes unstuck at the end precisely because of his inability to, to cope with the reality of drug experience, which seems a bit paradoxical when he's <laughs> written this very long book about it. But he... he, he 
and it is a long book, he, he, uh, he, he, as it were, sets up the book as being his quest to have these experiences. So, yeah, he's, he's I assume, in his, his late 60s or maybe in his early 70s, mm. and, and he is embarking on this for the first time. Remarkable, isn't it? Mm. And uh, does he say why, why now? Why suddenly thought he'd start taking drugs now? I think I think it, he felt it was it was in in the air to some extent. I think he'd been writing around the subject subject for a while, and it just gradually began to to interest him in that way. I mean, as it does. Because one thing you talk about a lot, you talk about in terms of doctors, you talk about it in terms of you know punk punk era acid dropping versus um, mm. like hippie era acid dropping. Um, like, is that the the context matters? Now, this mm. chap's taking mushrooms, LSD or whatever, in his 60s, maybe in a static caravan with his wife or whatever, he's probably going to have quite a different experience because of that, isn't he? Well, he seems to take a little bit of psilocybin, you know, the active ingredient in magic mushrooms with his wife at some lovely cabin in the woods, but that's a subcritical dose. His major psychedelic experiences take place, as it were, under clinical conditions. But as I say, they tend to involve a lot of incense, you know, tinging little symbols. And most crucially, which I find utterly bizarre... Uh, wearing um, blindfolds and listening to particular <laughs> music and stuff, and I, I just don't get that at all. It seems to me that, that, that you know, if the drugs, in a sense, are going to work, they're going to work in the world with this amazing amount of data there is available for you to. Oh, kind of process don't need a ritual. Isn't the ritual part of the whole thing? Right, but I mean, that, then you're back to the Sufists because why not just do without the drugs? You mm. know, it's like Kafka says in the Zuro aphorisms, you know, leopards invade the precincts of the sacred temples. They do it so often that it, they become incorporated <laughs> into the ritual. You <laughs> yeah. know, it's sort of... Yeah, yeah. Uh, and actually, it's the ritual. I mean, Kafka's point is it's the ritual that's significant. Uh, so I sort of wondered about that. It seemed to me that, you know, quite contrary to the view that Pollen and the kind of serious psychedelic researchers that he encountered are framing the experience, they're predetermining the experience themselves. Mm. Uh, you know, and, and what I say in the piece is, you know, the, the, I think Timothy Leary hit upon many interesting things. I mean, he was obviously, <laughs> well, I mean, you know, it was said of William Blake, you know, it was, Blake was, was um, what, what a bad artist would be like if he was a genius. And, and and Leary's sort of what a wanker would be like if he if he was also a kind of guru, you know. But but setting that to one side, Leary's concept of set and setting, of the idea that particularly with psychoactive drugs, drugs that affect mental states, the attitude of the person taking the drug and the context within which they take the drug is 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 crucially formative of the experience that results. Now. Clearly, that applies to all mood-altering drugs, not least, for example, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors or, or Prozac and mm. Siroxan, the commonly prescribed antidepressants, which I, and actually Michael Pollan sort of as well, would argue as, uh, as something we call a nocebo, uh, a drug that people think are affecting them precisely because of the negative side effects mm. of the drug. Same, not you, because you start feeling thirsty all the time or something, think it's doing something. Is that what you mean? Literally that. You start feeling thirsty all the time and you think, I must be happy. 
because because a very authoritative person has given me a pill manufactured by an international drug company with impeccable reputation that has been through comprehensive double-blind testing that is meant to make me less depressed. I am clearly having physical effects, therefore I must be less depressed. Because time and again, and nocebos work just as well as placebos. I mean, you know, I did a program on the 20th anniversary of uh, Prozac for the BBC, and and you know, I interviewed the head of uh, of uh, Eli Lilly, who pro- who produced is it Eli Lilly or Pfizer? I can't remember. No, it's Eli Lilly who produced Prozac, and and he admitted in in the in the program that there there is no known causal relationship between SSRIs and the alleviation of depression, only a strong correlation. So he actually admitted that. You know, the old you you guys may still be sitting there with the um, you know, chemical model of depression in your mm. mind. So that was disproved ages ago. Yet you still hear people talking all the time about, you know, this neurotransmitter and that neurotransmitter. They don't really know how all of that stuff works. It's much more like bashing a telly still. Uh, and in this case, bashing a telly with a, with a nocebo. Uh, and, and, you know, the, the, the... When you see it go a bit fuzzy, you think maybe the picture's better now yeah, afterwards. I mean, I wrote an article about this a long while ago for New Philosopher. I mean, it's called Planet Iatrogenic because... Just think about this. Why wouldn't you believe that, that Prozac would make you feel less depressed? I mean, think of what doctors can do. They can resurrect people from the mm. dead. I mean, particularly within our lifetime, medicine has become godlike in its capacity. Yeah, so yeah. why on earth would you? Why wouldn't you expect a pill given to you by a reputable doctor who you trust to make you happier? And indeed, it does. Uh, and yet, this word, <laughs> as ever, you're expanding my word power. Iatrogenic. Iatrogenic is an important word, which and it's one it everybody your... should know. It's a doctor-created disease. And 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 yet, you're talking here. I think about because of nocebo authority and all the rest of it they're having a real positive effect but just like not not in the way yeah. that we that the patient might imagine right so when we so get a to a good the, thing so a good thing and when and when we get to the psychedelics and their possible impact on depression particularly on these kind of you know self-oriented uh, psych- psychopathologies of one form or another particularly when we're focusing on them why wouldn't they work I mean, in other words, you don't even have to propose ideas of ego death or controlled circumstances or any of that. Though, as we say, that if you if you did the ritual uh, and just gave people something very mildly psychoactive, they might have quite an impact uh, because of the set and the setting. Um, but you know, you look at a, a book like uh, Irving Kirsch's *The Emperor's New Drugs*, which in, in which he looks at all the double-blind trial evidence in relation to antidepressants and other forms of of uh, psychoactive medications. I mean, as I say in the piece, heroin does much better as an antidepressant than SSRIs. Mm-hmm. Alcohol probably does better as an anti. You know, it's it's a question, uh, you know, of how we mediate these compounds socially. And how we manage them. Um, but where do you come out then in terms of how would you, how do you think we should manage them? You say these things are too important to be left to doctors. At the moment, the doctors don't really deal in these psychedelic types. Well, they, drugs, they do. do they? Actually, they do by default. It's important to realise that the way, you know, that the outlawing 
of psychoactives, whether it's heroin or LSD or any drug of that kind, uh, their prohibition and, and even with a long established and deeply socially ingrained uh, intoxicant like alcohol, mm. the way in which that's managed in our culture is a function not of uh, often, you know, the proximate function for the legislation is not public outrage. It's medical professional closure. It's like we're the guys who deal with these drugs, not the street. So, you know, and you look at the whole vexed history uh, and now the development of this opioid drug e epidemic in the States yeah. and now here, and that is an iatrogenic disease. That's a direct result of the American Medical Association in the 1950s declaring that heroin and other opiate drugs had no use in American medicine. That led to the massive increase in the development of opioids in the States and eventually to their vast overprescription and the creation of a doctor-created disease. So it wasn't that they addiction. were trying to monopolise them, they were trying to wash their hands of it they were trying to wash their hands of uh diamorphine of heroin mm. and anything to do with it uh and simultaneously control what little use of it there was completely themselves and it was part of the, it was two sides of the same coin of course when you get into what you know we call end of life situations then all bets are off and then it's we sort of acknowledge that the the morphine can come out and that's that's how we push people well, i mean i haven't the, uh... i haven't actually remember when my mother died or was, was killed in 1988 uh that's how she was killed yeah i mean 30 years ago and, and doctors i think were a lot the forms of language that were, were available then to discuss that kind of end of life ending of life care mm -hmm. we might call it were considerably more direct than they are now i think yeah, yeah. i mean Britain's never had quite such a dodgy relationship with, with opioid drugs as they do in America. We haven't panicked quite as badly. But we've panicked about drugs a lot. And, and of course, you know, all of these drugs are illegal uh, at the moment. And, and I think that one thing Pollen is keen, he talks to people here in Britain as mm. well who are involved in this new push to re-legitimize both research into them and their possible use in medicine and particularly in psychiatry. And, and listen, I'm not averse to that. I say in the piece... That's fine. If you need if you need the sort of Prozac nocebo experience, mm. you need the ritual. You're a leopard mm. who needs the <laughs> who needs the ritual, then fine, I'm comfortable with that. I quite like to go to a doctor if I've got something that, you mm. know, seems mostly physical wrong with me, like a broken leg. Mm. I'm quite happy <laughs> you know, I'm not gonna go and see a mechanic or a kind of shaman at that point. But it seems to me, I was very influenced when I was a young man by a marvellous collection of essays put together by the late Mary Douglas that had the fantastic title Constructive Drinking. Uh, and, you know, <laughs> the, the thrust of these anthropological perspectives were, you know, if you want to look at cultures that don't have big drug problems, then you look at cultures in which, uh, again, back to ritual, in which the rituals of drug use, whether they're for recreation or for some kind of sacerdotal purpose or some kind of therapeutic purpose mm. are integrated into the yeah. society yeah. and are part, vitally part of a transmission of understanding and knowledge from older to younger generations, that it is a socialised experience. Well, Michael okay? Pollan's doing his bit then, isn't he? Granddad star stripping. Michael Pollan's doing his bit and what he seems to be saying now, you know, he goes at the end of the book, which is very much a picaresque, at the end of the book he goes to a meeting of the American 
American Psychiatric Association, at which, you know, for the first time in years, they're discussing the use of psychedelic compounds, research into them, and the possibility of them being used legally. And he sees there a lot of the older guys his age and who are who are coming out as having used psychedelics now in the 1960s and 70s and, and are, are now prepared to admit that these compounds had a transformative role in their attitude. and that So that's kind of fascinating. That, you know, and why now? Is that just that their careers are secure and no one's going to hold it against them sort of thing? I think it's partly that. But worryingly, from my perspective, the way Pollen frames it is that, you know, the drugs don't work anymore. The problem is he thinks the SSRIs don't work because they're overprescribed. In other words, they're prescribed to people who don't have underlying chemical depressions. But Pollen doesn't really understand the nocebo argument. He hasn't read his Irving Kirsch and others on that question. Uh, so he's unfortunately structuring it as if this is a lifeline being thrown to Big Pharma. You know, and so what? what's Big Pharma going to do? Look at the explosion, weird explosion we had of so-called legal highs in this country. What's Big Pharma going to do? Tinker around with these compounds to produce kind of specially tra- tailored trips? Ah, Samir, what's your trauma? You know, can we design a drug that will... You can see the potential for Big Pharma to just go large on this and, and, and you know... And, and Put it together with the DNA monitoring and tailor-make the... Uh, and, and since the effects of Big Pharma are already so pernicious on, you know, they are the kind of, uh, you know, they are a kind of weird filter bubble of their own. Uh, uh, you know, Simon Schaffer, who's the professor of history of science at Cambridge, an old friend of mine, says that, you know, the, one, the, the, the presence of sponsored uh, graduate students from Big Pharma in his classes is, is incredibly disruptive and you hear it from a lot of academics as well. Their effect upon financing peer-reviewed papers is incredibly destructive as well. We have a kind of real problem with the influence of Big Pharma in academia and in the wider society. So the idea that these are the guys... These are the frontier. Right, these are the guys who are going to get hold of like these really powerful drugs <laughs> and start <laughs> flogging them to us. No! I would rather it was a guy with long hair in the back of the pub. Oh, let's just... No, I would. We, we need to wrap up soon, but how... Where do we go from here? We know, interestingly, it looks like from British Crime Survey, many fewer young people, like half as many as a few years ago, are using various illegal drugs. Mm. Even the legal highs in the most recent thing I mm. saw have gone down. They're just... Well, legal highs are out instead. now, Tom. They're, but they're all banned. They're all banned. They're all banned. banned. And actually, the period. And then also, just sorry, the, the 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 war on drugs as well itself. You know, failed for forty years. Then maybe just at the point where it started working, they started giving up on it. As in, well, is it working? though? I mean, look at the rash of uh, knife and gun crime throughout London in the last few months. That's all mm-hmm. drug driven. Is it really working? Look at the terrible. I mean, Mexico's on the point of becoming a failed narco state. Is it really working? And Afghanistan kind of is a failed narco <laughs> state. So is the Lebanon. No, it only meant oddly, people oddly forget about that. Working in the sense that fewer youngsters, for whatever reason, probably nothing to do with the war on drugs, seem to be taking them in Britain. Well, looking at the period that your graph covers, which you ran in the mag a few weeks ago, that does seem to coincide with legal highs here to some extent. So it's historic a little bit. So I suspect the banning of legal highs may have shifted that. But you're right. There does seem a general, but it's generational. And you know what it is? It's because, and I see this time and time again talking to my students about issues associated with drugs, it's because uh, our generation, loosely, Samir's probably a little younger, but actually you guys are probably 10 years younger. You're in your 40s? Yeah. Right, so my generation, people now in their mid-50s, 
we were disastrous druggies. The punk generation were the, were the druggiest generation ever. And these are our kids, is the point. And, you know, uh, you know, my kids, of course, understand and know my history. They have nothing to do with hard drugs at all. Nothing. Never have. It disgusts them. And, and I hear that time and again. It's because they've seen their parents' generation really come unstuck around this stuff. But, I think that's had a big effect. But when, you know, your generation, like, you think from George W. Bush on mm. Obama, like, they've all, um, like, taken drugs in their use. Mm. And it's probably harder to pretend you care. I mean, it does seem to be unravelling around the world from mm. Portugal Samir was telling me earlier in Switzerland, you mm. can just buy drugs. Uh, Colorado, you mm. can get spliffs very easily. Yeah. And, like it does seem that people are giving up on it. There's so where certainly, do we go now? There certainly seem to be, but we're not here. Not only we're not here. If you think about it, the latest moves on drug prohibition here have been in the other direction still. So recategorying, moving things up to severer penalties. Uh, it's the same in Britain as it's always been. There is a low-level tolerance for softer drugs, again, that wasn't there. But that was always there. Mm. Again, I think back to my youth. I remember that we used to smoke joints in the cinema late at night. And nobody thought anything of it. And I sort of was talking to some friends. I was saying, is that true? Did we really do that? And they said, yeah, you did. Mm. We really did. Or concerts. People would all be smoking weed at concerts. Mm. Imagine doing that now. So, you know, it's kind of really, uh, I'm not convinced. I think it's partly generational. I think it's still got an extremely pernicious effect. i tell you the other thing that may be in the mix, the widespread prescribing of these oddly psychoactive drugs like Prozac, you know, may be affecting people uh, and, and meaning that they use less illegal drugs. So, I don't know. Uh, war on drugs has never struck me as a good idea, and prohibition has never struck me as a good idea, except for drugs that you can describe as panapathnogens, absolute evils. In other words, drugs in which there's no real argument for using them in any kind of rec recreational way. And for, it may surprise you, but I would include in that powdered heroin and cocaine. I would keep them illegal. Uh, but, you know, I, I don't think there's any, you know, and I speak as, as somebody who had an addiction problem with those drugs of over 20 years. Uh, I don't think they should be legal. However, I do think compounds of cocaine and opium should be legally available. I don't think the effect is to do with the delivery mechanism and the way in which they can be sold. I'm regretting that we killed our rum column that used to be called If I Ruled the World. There's a <laughs> sort of self-manifesto on that. It'd be very interesting to read. Maybe we'll get you to do that at some point. But in the meantime, um, please do go online and um, have a look at Will's essay about Michael Pollan's book as well as his own experience. Um, and uh, I'm Tom Clark. As I say, I was joined by um, Samir as well as um, Will thanks to both of you and to Jay Elwes who is the uh, producer of the programme um, uh, whilst you're reading Will's essay I hope you'll note that our subscription rates are extremely reasonable tune in and drop out with the uh, Prospect podcast before long thanks very much Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.